We can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John chapter 4. As we continue our studies in the book of assurance, God's people need to be encouraged and reminded of where their strength and where their life lies, and it lies in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll look at verses 7 through 11 this morning, but I will read to verse 19 to set the context. So 1 John chapter 4, we'll begin reading at verse 7. The love of God is what we'll see today. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us, that he, because he has given us his, of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent the son as savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, there are some things that are difficult for us to understand and for us to comprehend. And certainly as we consider the Trinity and as we consider your love for us, these are things that are difficult for us to wrap our minds around. And so we, are, we ask and pray that you'd help us by your spirit to understand who you are and what you've done as you've revealed yourself in your word. We pray that we would have a high view of you, that we would love to study theology, that we would love to consider who our God is and love to consider what our God has done for us. And as we consider who you are and consider who we are and what we are, May our minds ever be more uh, inclined to honor and glorify you. May our hearts be moved to do what is right and pleasing in your sight because of what you have done. And we know that we need your spirit to help us in this. And so as we come and consider your love and as we come and consider how and why we ought to love one another, we ask and pray that you'd send forth your spirit. Please give us that illumination. Please help us to understand today. Please help us to have our minds turned on this morning that we, we might be focused on the things of you. Thank you for all that you've done. We pray that your saints would be strengthened and edified. We pray that your sheep would be encouraged and uplifted. And we pray for any here today who do not know you. Please save them. Please give them new life. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, love can be a difficult thing to define, even when we talk about it a lot. We hear the term, we consider the term, but what does it mean to actually love? Isn't it an emotion? Is it an action? Or is it someone? Is it a being? And that all depends on who we are talking about. With man, love is what we call an affection. We see some perceived good, what we think might be a good. We are moved by that very thing, and then we act toward it. There is a combination of emotion. We've been acted upon by something from without, and then we act based upon that emotion. And, well, what we can say then is we are moved toward something. It is a quality rather than something that is inherent within us. But with God, God is love. God in himself, he is love. God is infinite in himself. God is eternal in himself. God is immutable in himself and does not need anything from creatures. As we are moved by things from without, we can say with God, God is not moved by anything. And this, though this might seem abstract, the essence of God has encouraging application for the people of God. 
which is what John gives for us this morning in the passage that perhaps we all know God is love. And remember, John is writing to assure his hearers of where their eternal life lies. And it is grounded and founded upon Christ and his finished work. Christ who is life and Christ who is is love. And so he's writing to encourage the saints and everything uh, that he writes to them is founded and grounded upon Christ living, dying and rising again. But it's also grounded in who God is. And as we consider the context, he's assured the brethren there in Ephesus. He's assured them that when their hearts condemn them, God is greater. He assures them that, that when they love one another, albeit not perfectly, they can be assured they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as he says and commands them to love one another, what is the basis for that? What is the theological foundation for which we ought to then love one another? Now, the problem is clear in this passage. Man does not love. Man does not love God and man does not love man. And man thinks he might love. And a lot of times man does not love according to the way God has defined it. Even in the world today, many assume a certain definition of love. And really that definition is let's just let people live any way they wish to live. Let just love be love in this way. Love is love rather than trusting and adhering to what God has said concerning what love is. Anything contrary to God's word is not love at all. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And the problem is man does not love according to God's ways. Man has not loved God according to his ways, and man does not love man according to God's ways as well. And the only way then we as men can love God is if God first saves us. If God first loves us, we cannot love God or love our neighbor unless God who is love loves and saves. And this is the foundation that John gives to his hearers in verses seven through 11 of first John. And so in first John chapter four, verses seven through 11, he exhorts the people of God to love one another. And then he grounds it in the essence and energies of God. I'll define what I mean by energies when we get to our second point. But in a lot of times in God's word, the writers give a command and then they ground it in some sort of theology. Some of the richest passages about the incarnation of Christ, about the essence of God, start with a command. And the command is to love one another and then it is grounded in the essence and the energies of God. And so we'll look at this command to love one another under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see the God who is love in verses 7 and 8. And secondly, we'll see the God who reveals his love in verses 9 through 11. So the God who is love, verses 7 and 8. And then the God who reveals his love in verses 9 through 11. So the essence and the energies. So let's first look at the essence aspect, the God who is love in verses seven and eight. And it does start with this exhortation. Beloved, let us love one another. Now, as far as the context goes, what we saw last week was a digression of sorts. He talks about how we have received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells the people of God. The Holy Spirit is given as a gift for the people of God and what we call the economy of salvation. God for us, the Spirit is poured out and he indwells his people. And so how do we know one is of the Spirit? By what one says concerning Jesus Christ. How do we know what, whether one is an antichrist or a false prophet? By what they say concerning Jesus Christ. Remember, anyone is antichrist who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. So Christology is important when trying to figure out whether one is a false prophet or not. So it's important for us as the people of God to know Christology, who Jesus is and what he does in his person and his work. But also as it pertains to how we love one another, we also need to know who our God is and what Jesus has done in salvation. And so it's a digression. And then he resumes what he had said in 323. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. That is the entirety of the Christian life. Believe on Jesus, you shall be saved. And if you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, you are born of God. You ought then to love one another. And we saw in 1 John chapter 2 that love is connected with the commandments. 
We saw in 1 John chapter 3 that hatred is going against the commandments of God. So how do we love God? We uh, know what that, per- that good is. God has defined it. We ought to love him. We ought to worship him. And how do we then love man? Well, we honor our father and mother. That is a good thing. We don't kill other people. That is hopefully a good thing. We are not angry with other people, but rather the opposite. We build people up and then so on and so forth. When it comes to the rest of the Ten Commandments, driving to uh, the Ten Commandments really start and end with idolatry, right? Have no other gods before me. Don't covet. Because usually when we covet, that thing we covet is some sort uh, is becoming an idol in our hearts and lives. And so John is writing, beloved, love one another as he resumes what he was talking about. Love is a test of our allegiance to God. Love is a test of our assurance that we are Christ's. Again, we're not going to love perfectly, but if we love just a little bit, we can have some sort of assurance that we are Christ's and we belong to God. And the reason then we ought to love one another according to what God has said and starts with the household of God. And I'll talk about that more in just a moment. But let us love one another. The reason is for love is from God. Love comes from God. God has defined it and God is the source of it. God, who is love itself, has created man to love him and his neighbor. You see, when we talk about the idea of love as we compare it between man and God, we're talking by way of analogy. There's a qualitative difference between us and God. Hopefully you understand that. When we come to study all things in this world, it really can be boiled down to two things, God and not God. When it comes to studying theology, what we're really talking about is God and all things in relation to God. And so it's not as though when we talk about God in his love or God who is love, he is just a greater form of humanity. He is God. We are man. But we can understand what love is and who God is as he is love by way of analogy. And so with mankind, if we are born in, if we've been saved by God for believers, especially No, believers primarily, if we are saved by God, if we're changed in him, if we are loved by him, for love is from God. We cannot love unless we are of God. It comes from him. He is the source of it. Man was supposed to love God and his neighbor, but Adam did not do that, did he? And so he brought sin and misery into this world where now we don't love God and we don't love neighbor. And so we need Someone to save us. We need to be born again in order to then love God. The only way to love God is if God saves. And so with man, again, it's qualitative difference. Man should love according to his nature. When I ask you what a man is, man is not love, right? Love is not inherent to man, is it? If I were to ask you what a man is or what a woman is, you would just say body and soul. And then, as we see in scripture, also we are made in the image of God. But we are not inherently love. Our love is an affection. We are responding from something from without. We are being acted upon as we see that very thing and we respond to that very thing. That's why our love can increase and decrease, right? It can change. Our love, as Peter Sandlin says, it is fickle. It is dependent. It is conflicted. And it is impure. We do not love God. We have not loved God. The only way to then love God is if we are born of God. We are changed by God. We are changed by him. Beloved, let us love one another for love comes from him. The only way we can truly love God and love our neighbor is if we are born of God. And he goes on to say that in verse 7. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. We talked about this in 1 John chapter 3. We talked about how behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. We saw in 1 John 3, 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin. Again, not looking for uh, 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 perfection in this world. But if we are born of God, we do not. We love to do what God loves rather than love to do and engage in sin. For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. We're talking about regeneration. 
We're talking about effectual calling. We see this in John chapter 3. We see as Nicodemus comes to Jesus and Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, wait, how can I go back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a supernatural birth. He's talking about regeneration. He's talking about being born of God. And that is something that only the spirit does. And Jesus says that the spirit blows where it wishes. And when we consider the application of salvation, what Christ has done in the hearts and lives of his people, you cannot believe on Christ unless you've been regenerated. You cannot believe upon Jesus Christ unless you've been regenerated. You do not come to the front to be born again. The only reason you uh, believe on Christ is because you have been born again. It is a divine passive in John chapter 3. You must be born again and only God can do that very thing. And if you have been born of God, if you've been uh, have that supernatural work done in you, you believed on Jesus Christ, you are justified in his sight, you are adopted as sons, you are sanctified, then you can be assured that you are of God for love is of God. If you've been born of God, everyone who loves, everyone who is born of him, then can be assured of that very thing. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. John also says in John 1, verses 12 and 13, we referred to this uh, when we looked at 1 John 3. But John 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. I mean, he lays it out very plain there, right? Not of blood, not of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of... This is important, isn't it? Now, this entire book, it's all about knowing God, right? He writes that you might know that you have eternal life. If you love, you have been born of God, and you be assured that then you also know God. This is in contrast with the heretics. He's combating that wretched theology that teaches you have to have a secret knowledge with God and you can just live any way you sort of want to want to deny that Jesus came in the flesh. Everything is fine. John is using theology to combat heresy. But as he does so, he also encourages the people of God. You know God. You know him. If you love according to the way God has said, again, not perfectly, you can have that assurance that you are a child of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And so he gives this exhortation, love one another. He grounds it in who they are. He grounds it in the source of salvation, which is God. But then notice we get the essential reason for this exhortation in verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So we know we are of God. But notice he says, those who claim to have known God but do not love, they have never known God at all. The only way we can know the one true and living God is through Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings. That regenerated heart, that renewed mind, we can only know the true and living God by way of that work of God. We can only know him truly by way of salvation in Christ Jesus and all the benefits that come with that, including regeneration, but the gift of faith. The only reason we can believe by faith is because God has worked that in our hearts. And when we consider the changing of our hearts and we consider faith and repentance and justification and adoption and sanctification, all those things happen at once. When you're saved, when you believe on Christ, all those things happen at once. Regenerated. You believe on Christ, you turn from your sin, and as you believe upon him, you receive that gift of justification, righteous in God's sight. You're adopted as sons, and your process of sanctification begins. And in our confession, we see it split apart, and in various books, we talk about the various parts in the order of salvation, the, the things that God applies to us, the benefits based upon Christ's work, but we must be regenerated in all those things happen at once and so for these who do not know god he who does not love does not know god in reality the heretics love their selves they love sin and it's evidence and manifested that they don't love god 
The life in which we live is an evidence and assurance we are of God's if we love one another. But for those that do not love, and it's persistent, it's perpetual, there's no repentance involved, it's not based upon Christ and his finished work, then they have assurance that they are not of God. We can be sure of that. He who does not love does not know God. And remember, this heresy that was present here taught that spirit was good, matter was bad. The created world is bad, but as we see in creation, the created world was made good, right? But man just sought out his own devices and brought corruption into this world. But that doesn't change the fact that the created world was still created good. We can enjoy good things in this present world, albeit tainted with sin, but eating a donut is not inherently sinful, right? We can enjoy that good thing. That's a wonderful thing God has given to us. You know, plug in donut with whatever you want that very thing to be. But God has given us good things. And so what they taught, though, is that the things that they do in this life would never affect the spiritual realm. They can live any way they want. They can engage in debauchery. They can engage in sexual sin. They can do whatever they want. And it's not going to affect them in their spiritual state, dear uh, dear brethren. But brethren, even for the people of God with our remaining corruption, even when we fall into various sins, it affects everything, doesn't it? It affects all of us. It affects all that we do. Our minds are on it. We're, you know, we're grieved over those very things. We've grieved the Holy Spirit. We've engaged in things that we should not. And thankfully, God in his goodness with that, as he chastises and as he disciplines, reminds us that we need him. And it directs our attention and reminds us that we ought to honor and glorify him through Jesus Christ. But these heretics were saying, you know, we can do whatever we want. We can just live any way we want. We don't have to love anybody. And that is an evidence that they do not know God. And so after he gives the statement concerning who do, who, those who do not know God, he then grounds it in who God is. For God is love. This is who our God is. And scripture Theology and theology based upon scripture helps us think through who our God is. Now, everyone loves this passage. God is love. And we really all should love it, dear brethren. Now, evangelicalism, evangelicals typically struggle with the idea of the wrath of God. But there are other places in the Bible as we read the whole of scripture and as we try and contemplate and think who God is, we must recognize that God has revealed himself by way of various attributes that we see in scripture. And so we can't take away that he is just, but we also must marvel at the fact that he is love. Now, we're going to do some theology here. Hopefully you're okay with that. Hopefully you drank your coffee this morning. Hopefully your thinking caps are on this morning as we go through this. But I do believe it is important to learn language concerning theology, especially theology proper. There are pastors who disagree with me, and that's fine. There are pastors who think we need to make things more accessible, and so they avoid any sort of certain theological language. I, to one degree, uh, on some, uh, yeah, to one degree, understand that. But at the same time, I also think we need to just learn grammar. We need to learn the language of Scripture, right? You know, we need to understand that. I think you guys are intelligent, right? Sometimes I want to say to these guys, so you don't think your people are smart, eh? You just just want to dumb it. No, we need to learn this very language, don't we? And as we hopefully learn this very language, hopefully we are love our God more. Hopefully we grow in our understanding of God that we might then be able to love him and honor him and worship him all the more by recognizing who he is. And if I can just make one comment, just hopefully to spur you on to want to learn more language of theology. In the 1600s, most people were illiterate right? Generally, most people were illiterate, and yet the pastors still preached theology to them. And even too, John brings in theology here to his people. And yet generally, we are more literate than most of the people in centuries past. And yet we do not want to learn the language of God, right? That is what it is. We do not want to do it. We don't want to think. We don't want to put our mind into it. But brethren, let us do it together. 
And so I'll do my best to explain some things here for us, uh, mainly two key doctrines when it comes to God uh, as we think about who God is. So let's do it. So the first doctrine is the doctrine of what we call simplicity. It's not the opposite of complex. That's one way to tell someone doesn't know what simplicity is without saying they don't know what simplicity is. But the opposite of simplicity is composite. Our confession says God is without body parts. He is without parts. God is who he is and his attributes don't add up together to be God. All that is in God is God. You and I are a composite being. We're made up of what? Body and soul. But God is perfection. God is absolute perfection. So there's nothing outside of God that adds up to be God. God must be who he is. And that's what we see at the burning bush. I am who I am. God is who he is. And so as we consider God's attributes, as we consider his perfections, it helps us and accommodates to our language and helps us to understand the God who has revealed himself in his word, but without comprehending God in his essence. So simplicity is without parts. It's by way of negation. That is, he's without parts. Negation, infinite, not finite. Immense, not measurable. Uh, the one way to talk about this is by way of negation. It's what we have used, theologians have used to help us contemplate our God. So simplicity, without parts. He is who he is. And as we consider the unfolding of scripture, we must recognize that God doesn't change, right? We change before him, Right? Before we were saved, we are under what? The wrath of God, which is grounded in what? The justice of God. But that's, as we see the justice of God, that's just one way of understanding who he is. Then as we see the love of God, that's another way of standing who he is. But God is who he is, and all that is in God is God. And so God doesn't change. Our status before him changes. Because if we knew God the way God knows himself, we would then be God. But the reality is you are not God. And if we knew God the way God knows himself and we are still man, we would explode. Uh, So we must just make sure we say things we uh, don't say things we shouldn't about our God. I probably did somewhere along there, but simplicity, God without parts. That's why we can say he is love and he is who he is. He is not it's not a quality in him, but it is who he is. And then the second doctrine today is impassibility. This goes with the doctrine of immutability. It means God does not change. And impassibility means God does not undergo emotional change. God is not moved by anything. Psalm 50, 12 says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. Acts 17, 25 said, God is not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. John 5:26, just as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself. Numbers 23 and then also in Malachi 3, God uh, especially numbers 23, I am not a son of man who changes his mind. God does not change. God is not moved by anything from without. God cannot and does not change. He is pure act. You and I increase and decrease in our love, where for God, God is not moved by anything from without. And what it teaches us, and as we consider his essence, God is love. He doesn't increase or decrease in it, but he simply is love. And one way to describe this is in the confession. He is most loving. Again, that's for our, our brains for man's brains, for help us to apprehend to some degree who our God is. Some of you might be thinking, what about passages where it says God changed his mind? Well, there are passages where he talks about the essence, Numbers 23. He's not a son of man who changes his mind. But there are places he talks about he changes his mind. So how do we deal with that very thing? Again, I, I use the essential passages, God is not a son of man who changes his mind, to help us with those other passages. And usually in the passages where it says God changes his mind, it's usually in a narrative. 
He's usually dealing with something. And it helps us to see speaking in the Bible speaks in the manner of men to help us understand something about our God. And so impassibility is important. God is not moved by anything, either from without or from within. And when we consider that, it should cause us to marvel at his love. Love in man is not the same as love in God. Peter Sandlin again says, this means that we do not view God's love as merely a more powerful version of human love. I must confess, before I learn more about this, I think I thought of love in that way. And I surmise many of you have felt that way or thought that way as well. God is just a higher being or just that's just more powerful than humans versus being different. And so Sandlin says God's love is of a different order to our love at a fundamental, qualitative, ontological level. God's love is other than our love. The love of the uncreated creator must be infinite, perfect and independent. God's love cannot be dependent upon his creatures. If God needed his creation, he would not be the sovereign, free God he declares himself to be. Brethren, God does not need you and I. And as we consider that and ponder that, it should cause us to worship him all the more. That he, out of his sheer good pleasure, made the world. And he called it good. That he, out of his good pleasure, after man fell into sin, saved sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ because he is love. You see how John takes theology and makes it the grounding for why we ought to love one another? Sometimes we forget that as we go through these passages. We ought to love one another because God is love. If God has redeemed us, then we ought to love one another. If God so loved us, we ought then to love one another. Notice it starts primarily with the household of God. We ought to love one another first. We ought to love hopefully our families first, but certainly we ought to love fellow man. Why? Because God is love. And Stott gives a very searching quote. He says, for the loveless Christian to profess to know God and to have been born of God is like claiming to be intimate with a foreigner whose language we cannot speak or to have been born of parents whom we do not in any way resemble. If we've been born of God, we believed on Christ, we ought then to love one another. And if you do not love, if you have not loved, but you believed on Christ, remember, his sacrifice is sufficient. And if you have not believed upon Christ at all, believe on him and you shall be saved. And out, the, out of the outworking of what he has done in the life of his people, God's people ought then to love one another. Again, he's grounding his practice in theology. And I surmise that perhaps our worship is cold. Perhaps our love is cold because we have a low view of God. Perhaps we do not prioritize the things of God as much as we should because we have not spent time contemplating who God is. See how theology is important, dear brethren? Who God is, what he has done. Who God is in himself and who God is for us men and for our salvation. Perhaps if we do not prioritize, we do not love as we should, perhaps the best thing for us would, to be, would be to read some theology, to read some theology proper. And if not, I understand, you don't have to read everything on that, but come to church and you'll have sermons like this where these things do come up. Because we ought to have a high view of God, recognize who he is. He is love. And we see his love for us in the works that he does. And so he is love. We see that very clearly here. That's the, one of the reasons we ought to love one another. We see the God who is love in verses 7 and 8. But then we see what he does in verses 9 through 11. So we'll move from the essence portion to the energies portion. The God who reveals his love, verses 9 through 11. The God who reveals his love, verses 9 through 11. We see, again, this is the energetic. I like the two E's, the essence and energies. So we saw the essential reason, now the energetic reason for this exhortation, the works of God. When I say energy, I just mean the works of God. That was old language used to describe what God does. 
And as we see in verse 12, no one can see God at any time. We cannot comprehend God in his essence. The only way we can know God is by way of analogy, by way of his revealing himself to us. And the way in which we know God is by his works, by his revelation in his word and by his revelation in Jesus Christ. Again, it should put us in our place in God and his. That's the whole point of the sermon. This whole point of this passage. That's the whole point of theology. God in his place, us in ours. And to recognize when we think, consider who this God is and what he does for us by his grace and by his power and by the spirit, we ought then to honor and glorify him. But we cannot comprehend him in his essence. I love what John says in John. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. We'll get to that more in just a moment. But verse 18 No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared in him. How do we know God, dear brethren, in the work of the son? The triune work of God in the son taking on human flesh. He is the word who reveals God to us. And so it's only in the word through faith that we can then have communion with God. You see how theology, again, is important. And so we really do move from God and his essence to our triune God. And if we could uh, describe this idea of not comprehending God in his essence, he dwells in unapproachable light. First Timothy 6.16. Uh, Turretin uses the idea of sun and its rays. If we were part of the essence or saw the essence of the sun up close and personal, we would all burn, right? Well, but we know the sun by its rays. And so I don't know if that, I probably violated some sort of theological aspect there. I never use analogy for the Trinity, by the way, but I think sun and its rays describes the essence of God and the energies of God, the sun and its rays. And so it's manifested in this verse nine is the love that this uh, in this, the love of God was manifested It is revealed toward us. We need this God to reveal himself toward us savingly in the word of God. The only way to know the Trinity is by way of God's word. And we see Trinitarian language here for us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world. In this is the love of God that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Again, as we consider simplicity, all that is in God is God. When we consider the mystery of the Trinity, one God, three persons, those three persons do not add up to be God. Those three persons do not add up to be God. We see in scripture, the recognition of the one, the one true God, But we see in scripture as well that the father is God and the son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. And we see that distinguishing of the persons here. The one God, the father has sent his son. Love is common to the three. The father is love. The son is love. The Holy Spirit is love. The father is almighty. The son is almighty. The Holy Spirit is almighty. So how then we do we distinguish between the persons? Well, we see in the sending, the mission of the Son and the Spirit reveals something about how God relates in the Trinity. Not by nature and being, as our confession says, they're not three gods, but several peculiar properties and personal relations. The Father is unbegotten, The son is eternally begotten and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the father and the son, not in nature and being, but in property and relations. And we see that here in the sending language. God has sent his son. The salvation of sinners is a triune work of God, but it's the son who takes on human flesh. And we see that the sending of the son, the son becoming incarnate, reveals that the son is eternally begotten. Notice we see mission and procession connected right here. Procession is eternal relation of origin. The mission is that eternal relation in created effect. And so we see this here. Sending language 
what God does for us, how the triune God saves, that God has sent his only begotten son. God has sent his only begotten son into this world. The son is never subordinate in his divine nature. There are not eternal relations of authority in God, the father in God, God, the the father is almighty. The son is almighty and the Holy spirit is almighty. But when it comes to the salvation of sinners, the son is the one who assumes and takes on human flesh. And what makes him unique monogenes is the word we see the only begotten son. What makes him unique is that he truly is the one who is eternally begotten. The language is used in John three sixteen for God, um, uh, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Again, theology and gospel or again, John 1 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time, but he who is in the bosom of the Father, the only begotten Son of God. So John is speaking with language, theology and Trinity to help us recognize and see the mystery and the glory and the goodness of God's love for us. And so God in his divine or the Son in his divine nature he, t- the, uh, he is impassable. He is love. He all that is in God is God. But it is the son, the one who who takes on another what God has sent his only begotten son into this world for a purpose that we might live through him. The one who is eternally begotten is the one who is incarnate. And as he's incarnate, he takes on human nature without in any way uh, diminishing his divine nature. That's a problem, too, isn't it? A lot of people want to argue back from the incarnation, from the humanity of Christ into the divine nature. That's why Chalcedon is important. That's why I said, read the definition of Chalcedon, because we cannot conflate the natures together. We cannot divide the person, but we cannot conflate the nature. Because if you conflate the nature, then God changes, doesn't he? Then something is then added to God, but nothing can be added to God. But there is a work that God does, and the work that is done by our triune God is the incarnation with the Son taking on that human nature. That is a mystery, but it is how God shows his love. In this love, God was manifested toward us. The eternally begotten Son becomes incarnate. He takes on a human nature, all the the essential properties, will, body, and soul. He does have emotions. He does have affections as a man, but he does not have affections in his divine nature. And so he says, he did this for this reason. Why did he send him? What was the purpose that the son was sent into the world? And if I may just make one theological comment Grammar helps us with some theology here. When the son ascends into heaven, he does not stop being the God man. He doesn't put off the flesh. He is forever the God man. And the grammar here we see with the language of sent, the way it should be translated, has been sent. And that continues on to be the one who is is incarnate. He remains fully God and fully man. For what reason? That we might live through him. Remember, God has perfect life in himself, but yet why does the son come for us, man, and for our salvation? Why does John write his gospel? He gives us the answer in 2028. I write this that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that you might have life through him. The only way we who once were dead can be made alive is based upon the finished work of the one who had life in himself, taking on human flesh, dying as that sacrifice, being raised again and ascended into heaven. It all shows what God has done for us. Man, the message of the gospel is about he who is eternal life, that we might have eternal life in him through faith. That's why we say believe on him to be saved. Believe on Christ and you shall be saved. He is the eternal God. Believe on him. You shall have life in his name. 
but it manifests God's love for us. The God who is love, how does he show that to creatures by his works? The son becomes incarnate, but then we also see not just that he's incarnate, but verse 10, we see his sacrifice. Again, in this is love, not that we loved God. Again, God is not allured by any love that we thought we might have. God is not impressed by anything we have done. God is the one who saves us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. But notice even in the sacrifice of the son, it shows God's love. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And how does he show that? He sent his son. He sent his son to be incarnate, but not just to be incarnate, but also to die in a certain way. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent him to be the sacrifice for many. He sent him, knowing that, uh, sent him for the purpose that as he came into this world, he would live the life, a perfect life, and then die as that perfect sacrifice. That's how we see what love is. And notice we see love and the cross here. We see the motivation to use our language, the motivation of God's salvation. The motivation of the judgment upon the cross that, uh, that Christ bears. We see the justice and love of God come. As he pours out his wrath upon the Son. As the wrath of God is poured out upon our Christ. We receive life in him. You see it's a great mystery. The justice we deserved is poured out upon him. That when we go to that end time judgment we do not need to fear. And we have life with God. There's tons of theology. I mean, there's practical application, love one another, grounded in theology proper. And then we move into Christ and who he is and his person and his work. I mean, there's tons here. I probably could have just done beloved. That would have been one sermon. Then let us love that another sermon. But that would be just way too long. Uh, And you're like, this is already going on too long, but that's okay. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our Sins, And as we saw in 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation, not just for our sins, but for the world. Propitiation just refers to the sacrificial. It refers back to the sacrificial system. How is it that we can approach unto God, dear brethren, whom we've sinned against? It's by sacrifice. And thankfully, it's in the one who is the once for all sacrifice for his people. How is it that we can walk with him? Well, it's because we've been received the spirit and has, the spirit has been poured out. But sacrifice is very clear here. And propitiation, that's a big word, but it just means the turning away of the wrath of God. It just means the turning away of the wrath of God. It can also carry the idea of expunging or expelling sin, removing sin and turning away the wrath of God. But as we consider what Christ has done, as we consider what we have done against God, we needed this one to be the sacrifice for us. And it's grounded in God who is love, who shows his love by Christ living and dying and rising again. The offending party must propitiate, turn the way of the wrath of God. The offended party forgives based upon that sacrifice. That's exactly what God has done in Christ. That's why if you believe upon his name, your sins are forgiven because his sacrifice is sufficient. And the wrath of God that was once upon you because of your sin, God has taken away in Jesus Christ. This is where we see what love is the knowledge of who God is and the knowledge of what he has done. And he comes back in verse 11 to drive home the application. Beloved, if God so loved us, if the God who is loved so loved us in this way that the son became incarnate, that the son became incarnate to die on the cross, shouldn't we then also ought to love one another? If God so loved us, Let us love. We ought to love one another. Peter Sandlin says, God's love for creatures is not merely a grand gesture from a Roman cross. God's love is not distant. God's love is God. God's love would not be his love if it were something that could only be talked about, described, or understood. Since God is love, when people receive God's love, they experience God himself. Doesn't mean we're deified. 
but we're united to God and we walk with him. And the only way we can walk with God, dear brethren, is through the sacrifice based upon a God who is love. And so, if God so loved us, let us love one another, dear brethren. If God loved those across the pew, let us love them as Christ has loved them. You see how important theology is? Who God is, who he is in his being, and what he does for us man and for our salvation is practical. That as our minds are renewed by what God, is, what God says and who he is, that we can be then have our hearts inflamed to do what is pleasing in his sight. I pray that you love God. I pray that you learn more about God. I pray that you want to understand and grasp these things, that we might love God all the more. Because the foundation of our love for one another is God's love for us in Christ. In the incarnation, at the cross, that is where we see God's love. And if you're an unbeliever here today, you don't know love and you do not know God. Listen to what John says. God is love. God has manifested his love by sending his son to die because you don't love God. But if you believe upon him, your sin shall be forgiven and you shall know the love of God. For as the scripture says, it's not that we loved God, but that God loved us. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we pray that you'd forgive us for not loving one another. And we pray that you'd forgive us for not wanting to understand and consider who you are, for not having a high view of you, a recognition of your being, a recognition of what you've done, and even pondering the salvation that we have received in Christ Jesus. Please forgive us. Please wash us afresh in the blood of Christ. Help us not to sin, but help us remember that if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And we're thankful that his sacrifice is sufficient. Thank you that we see in your uh, wise and glorious plan, the great mystery revealed in Christ Jesus, that it was you, O God, who sent forth your son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. And we're thankful that you've sent forth the spirit who indwells each and every one of the people of God that we might cry out, Abba, Father. This has nothing to do with anything within us. This has nothing to do with whatever love we might have thought we have had. This has nothing to do with anything inherently good within us, but it is based upon your blessed plan and based upon who you are. And so we are thankful for this. So help us to praise you for who you are. Help us to praise you for what you've done and help us to love one another. Thank you that it's not that we loved you, but that you first loved us. And may this encourage us, encourage us, may this uplift us, and may this cause us to honor and glorify you. Thank you that you speak in your word. And be with us now as we come to partake of your word. Help us to partake by faith and be encouraged by what you've said. We pray these things in the name of Christ.